Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute, where we have real conversations about real safety issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Today, we're talking with two ECRI Institute analysts about patient violence in healthcare. Patient violence is a problem that sits at the intersection of worker and patient safety, potentially affecting anyone who works in, is treated in, or visits a healthcare facility. The issue is enough of a concern that it has appeared on ECRI's top 10 patient safety concerns list every year from 2014 to 2018. Today, we'll look at what we know about the prevalence of violent acts committed by patients, some of the organizational and individual risk factors, and what organizations can do to equip their staff to reduce that risk and respond if violent incidents occur. As we get started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves. My name's Cindy Wallace. I'm Senior Risk Management Analyst at ECRI Institute. Hi, I'm Nancy Napolitano. I am a Patient Safety Analyst with ECRI Institute's Patient Safety Organization. So, Cindy, you were the author of our most recent guidance in our healthcare risk control program about patient violence. And I wonder if maybe we could start with the basics here. You know, there are a lot of different kinds of violence in healthcare. I wonder if you could define for me what do we mean when we're talking about patient violence specifically? So, Paul, patient violence is a form of healthcare violence. You can have physical aggression, such as hitting, biting. It can include threats of physical aggression, not necessarily something that's carried out. It can also include verbal assaults. And that's important because a lot of healthcare staff don't recognize that verbal assaults are a form of patient violence. Calling people names, swearing at them, that is a form of patient violence. Patient violence can involve multiple people within the organization. We often associate patient violence as acts against staff members, but it can also include acts against other patients, acts against visitors. So that's important to recognize as well. So, you know, Cindy, that encompasses a lot of different kinds of actions that you described. What do we know about how frequent or how prevalent patient violence is in, in any healthcare setting, and in, in let's maybe hospitals specifically? So that's a really good question. And unfortunately, we don't have any number to quantify the extent of patient violence in healthcare facilities. There's no one report that provides that information, and that's part of the problem. We know patient violence is occurring, but we just don't know the extent. Now, one report that's really helpful is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's part of the Department of Labor. And the Bureau annually reports the rate of person-related injuries to healthcare workers resulting in days lost from work as a result of that injury. The overall rate in private industry is one person-related injury resulting in a day away from work for every 10,000 workers. That's overall rate in private industry. In healthcare, that rate for nurses is six times higher. And then when you look at psychiatric technicians, that rate is 200 times higher. And remember, we're talking about injuries that result in lost work days. We're not even including those assaults that occur and then the healthcare worker goes on with their responsibilities, their duties. So those rates definitely reflect a much lower incidence 
than is actually occurring. There are also surveys from individual hospitals and professional groups that provide us with an idea of the rate of patient violence. For example, in our guidance article, we reported a survey that was done by one Florida hospital asking its nurses in the emergency department how have they experienced patient violence. A hundred percent of them said that they had experienced verbal assaults, and more than 80 percent of them said that they had experienced physical assaults. So, Nancy, I want to bring you into the conversation. You know, Cindy mentioned that there's there's no number out there for what the incidence of patient violence is in healthcare, and that puts me in a mind of thinking about event reporting and things like that. Is patient violence then underreported? And and if it is underreported, how come? That's a great question, Paul. Um, a lot of these events are underreported because a lot of the nursing staff in facilities and hospitals believe that some form of patient violence is acceptable and part of the job, which is a real problem because no one in a hospital should be exposed to patient violence or fear that they are going to get hit or spit at or verbally abused because they're a nurse in a hospital and the patient is, is ill. Um, the underreportedness also is that it depends on the culture of the hospital as well, whether or not the hospital believes or the hospital leadership believes that they have a problem with patient violence or if the patient violence uh, against the nurse becomes a punitive value for patient safety satisfaction. So, uh, Nancy, if patient violence is underreported in healthcare, and uh, we don't have any reason to think that the incidence is going down, and that's part of the reason it keeps showing up on our annual list uh, of the top 10 patient safety concerns year after year, and it's why uh, it was one of the topics that we covered in our most recent uh, PSO deep dive report that talked about a lot of different aspects of behavioral health care. What do we think about why the incidence is not going down, and, and do we have any uh, expectation that we're going to see it you know, uh, change going forward? Well, Paul, I think that what we're going to see is the incidence actually going up if we use our reported data to uh, benchmark, because um, I think where hospitals are going with their culture of safety and where they are encouraging their staff to report, I think the education around uh, the staff not having violence as part of their job description will encourage more people to um, report. The other problem is the staff that works on medical floors is not really trained to handle behavioral health issues or diagnoses or uh, disorders, behaviors. And what happens is when you have a patient in an environment where there is no skilled staff member to work with them, the smallest, slightest um, challenge or direction can cause a behavioral health patient to get aggressive or get defensive or act out. And depending on what the patient's issues are, um, if you don't know how to de-escalate or if you don't know how to approach someone safely, the risk potential is exorbitantly more. So, you know, where we're going with this is that there's physical ways to to stand and, and, and treat a patient 
as well as being able to recognize and good assessment to know that someone might have special needs as far as behavioral health goes on the medical floor. And those trainings are critical in, in, de, in getting these events to go down. You know, Nancy, a, a surprising figure <laughs> I came across as we were preparing this guidance article on patient violence is one in three hospitalized patients has a behavioral or substance abuse disorder. And these are patients who are being admitted to the med surge unit who have these issues. They're being treated for a heart attack or something mm -hmm. else, but they still have those behavioral health issues that need to be managed. And as mm -hmm. you're saying, staff don't have the training right. to manage these conditions. Another issue that um, comes up with the violence is that sometimes when patients get admitted through the emergency department or get admitted for a procedure, the medical medications are often reconciled and passed on, but what often gets dropped is the psychiatric list of medications. So if you have a patient who is on and stabilized on a behavioral health, a psychiatric medication, and then it gets stopped for three days unbeknownst to anyone, what it does to the patient is it brings them back. And to get them back to their therapeutic level can be days, if not months, of doing that. So it's very detrimental to not pay attention to all the medications that the patient comes in on. And we're seeing that more frequently, that in the reconciliation, the meds aren't there, and no one notices that they're not there. So there are a lot of components to this, and the biggest component is doing that assessment when the patient hits the, hits the door in the you know, emergency room. Ask the questions. Use a, a valid assessment to identify. But the, the key piece here is to make sure that that information gets pushed on as the patient goes through the health system. Uh, okay, so you're emphasizing that, that, that sharing and communication of information, and that makes me think that that's a big pitfall that we're running into. Do we, do, is that something we see, for instance, in the PSO data, that, 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 that gap in communication or that interrupted communication? Yes. We see that a lot in the PSO, not only for the behavioral health patients, but the general medical patients, that sometimes the, the, the medication reconciliation that starts in the ED looks very different by the time they get to their general med floor or the ICU. And sometimes in the computer, if the patients had multiple visits to that hospital, there may be multiple reconciliations in there, and without checking you may not know which one's the most recent. So it, it, med, med reconciliation is critical in that component, but also the assessment. And I believe that an assessment should be completed not only in the emergency room, but it should be completed on the unit. But even more important than that is if that assessment comes up positive for violence or aggression, what do we do with that? Well, you anticipated my next question, actually, oh, which is, which is, you know, when, when a patient comes in and... and We've done all our screening properly. Let's let's mm -hmm. give our give them that much, right? right? And now I've identified that you know patient X is uh, we're we're concerned that there's a risk there that they may be aggressive, they may be violent, whatever. What do we do besides making sure that that information is recorded somewhere? What do we do um, in the immediate moment, and what do we do throughout the duration of their hospitalization to reduce the risk to every staff member that comes in contact with them? That great question. Every at the immediate risk is to identify that there is potentially a problem. So keeping your normal 
safety responses in place. Make sure your uh, response team, if, it, if you have a behavioral response team or if you have security who responds to codes for behavioral problems, make sure that they are aware that in room X, Y, and Z, this person has the capability or has the, the platform to, to potentially become aggressive. The other issue is that the patient, um, it's no fault of the patient that they have whatever illness is going on. And I think it's really important that the staff recognizes that some illnesses are not clear. If you break your leg and the bone you know, breaks your skin, it's really clear. You, you fix the bone, you put them in a cast, and everything's good. But mental issues, behavioral issues, are not that clearly, A, acknowledged or fixed. And we really need to have the compassion and the respect and reduce that stigma about mental health and, and stereotypical things. Because what I probably would say is that you don't know how many people on your floors right now have mental illness. They could be very stable, you know, and, and mental illness is everything, runs the gamut from depression, you know, to schizophrenia, to autism spectrum disorders. Um, so, you know, you don't really know what it looks like. So you can't always tell like a broken bone. So we've talked a couple times about training, about making sure that staff are trained um, to to handle the, these situations. So I, I understand we can't talk about everything that would be covered in a training program that would probably last several days, um, but, but maybe what are some of the highlights of things that we want to make sure are included in staff training? So as you say, Paul, training is key. One of the key aspects of training is giving staff some of the warning signs that uh, indicate that an individual is starting to get anxious and, and the situation is escalating. So go over the warning signs. Give staff some techniques. Help them de-escalate the situation. That's key. You want to keep the situation from becoming a crisis. So give staff techniques on uh, remaining calm, remaining professional, being empathetic to the individual, but also setting limits. So as part of the training, it's important to, to include simulation, role-playing, bring in some actors who can act out as, as violent patients. Let staff use some of these techniques that they've learned uh, so that they feel a bit more empowered than when it uh, really happens to them. Um, give staff some instruction on how to protect themselves should a patient become violent. What, what techniques can they use for that? Those are exactly right. And the other things along those lines um, are that, you know, de-escalation is the beginning of any violent act. If you can de-escalate them at that level and it doesn't rise to violence, then you've done a great job. And not all de-escalation will work with every situation, especially if there are substances involved. But the other part of this is that training can't just be one time. We've got to reinforce learned skills because what happens is that things that are innate to us, which are if you're in danger, your fight or flight comes in again, and that is what you're going to go to if these trained and learned behaviors of skills get, don't get practiced. So have a code just like you have a fire code. Do some mock aggression drills or mock violent drills just to see 
and, and work with people on how they could potentially de-escalate that situation. And Nancy, I think a, another important technique to help staff is when an incident does occur, mm -hmm. after the incident, use a debriefing. When people can reflect back on what happened, mm -hmm. think about what caused that situation to escalate, is there something I could have done differently, mm -hmm. and have the staff talk amongst themselves, offer suggestions, and I think individuals will feel maybe a bit more empowered the mm -hmm. next time that happens because they, you know, saw what happened when maybe they didn't use the right approaches and they have a better sense of what they can do to stop the situation from escalating. That's an excellent point. You always have to rehash what has gone on because that is the, that is the time where the learning takes place right after the incident. The other thing is, if you come across a patient who you feel you just can't communicate with for whatever reason, sometimes it's transference, it, it reminds you of someone else, and, you know, it happens. We're all human before we're anything else, and you may have that issue. Go to a coworker and say, you know what, I've tried to give this patient medicine three times. I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe if you can try once, it would really be helpful. And sometimes different approaches get different results. And... It's not, it's not rocket science. It's just learning skills like you learn to, you know, start an IV. Those are learned experiences and learned skills. So, obviously, in spite of all these efforts and trainings and de-escalation, sometimes this aggression or violence is going to happen. Um, and there's an immediate consequence to that, right? If I hit you, I bite you, I spit on you, there's an immediate acute injury that takes place. Um, but what are some of the other consequences of these actions? And I'm thinking uh, in terms of, you know, both on the individual worker and on the workforce collectively. What are, what are some of those other consequences that we might face? Well, I, I think one of the important um, aspects of that is that we do have to recognize that when something goes wrong with a patient, there are resulting feelings and emotions that go along with that. And whether it's behavioral, medical, whatever it may be. And what happens often is that people start getting burned out. But you get burned out because the support systems are not there for the staff. And earlier on we talked about the leadership culture. The leadership needs to really look at supporting this environment if patients are going to be coming in and potentially getting violent, which no one can predict that. So that's when the staff needs to feel empowered to A, report, and to ask for assistance. And a lot of the hospitals have EAPs that go in. And sometimes it just you just have to recognize that this is not the normal way that my day is supposed to go. This is out of the realm of what a normal day or a nurse's day should look like. The other thing I wanted to bring up when we were talking about assessment Remember that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. So if these patients have been violent before or you have record of them being violent, that should be an indicator before any other assessment takes place. Because if you can do it once, it can, be, it can happen again. And that's a really important thing to, to hang on to before any assessment gets taken. You know, talking about the consequences for staff, we wrote about one individual, an ED nurse, 20 years experience as an ED nurse, and she suffered brain injury and fractures from a patient who happened to be 
a uh, boxer. Um, after that incident, she left the profession. And she left the profession because she did not feel supported by her organization. That gets mm -hmm. back to what you were saying earlier, that we need to have the systems in place so that staff feel safe working in their organization. There are other consequences that aren't just related to the staff. They're related to patients. And there have been studies reporting that staff who have dealt with a patient who's been violent are hesitant to come in and take care of that patient. That's not something we want to see. But if staff are hesitant to go to that patient, what's the level of the quality of care that that patient is, is receiving, and that's a concern. Another concern is other patients. When staff have experienced an assault or patient violence, they're distracted. And people who have witnessed that, other staff who have witnessed that, are distracted too. And then during those times of distraction, what's the risk of staff being involved in a medical error? issuing, giving medications to the wrong person, mm -hmm. the wrong dose, the wrong medication. So there are so many consequences for patient care, for staff, for the facility itself in t when uh, patient violence occurs in the facility. The other thing along that line, um, which is another great point, is that, you know, we need to also make sure that our rooms are set up appropriately. So if you have a patient who's suicidal or violent, then make sure there's nothing in the room that can go flying or they can use as a weapon when you're not paying attention. And um, there have been um, events of that kind where a patient grabbed the, the nurse's scissor right out of her pocket and stabbed her. Something that you just don't think about because that nurse probably puts that scissor in her pocket every single day. But when you're dealing with patients like this, make sure nothing's around your neck. Or if it's a badge, it's a breakaway. Make sure the, there's no, uh, no rolling tables in the room that can be picked up and thrown. So we really have to do environmental assessments as well as the physical uh, you know, um, behavioral assessment when we have this. And some of the things I've been talking to the clients about is that we really need to um, identify rooms that are, uh, for lack of a better word, psych-proofed, where these are the rooms when you do get a patient like that, then you're very comfortable putting them in because if they are suicidal, there are no ligature risks in the room and all of the equipment is outside the room. And if somebody's going to be sitting on them while they're getting a, an IV, at least that's, you know, the IV cord can be, you know, shorter than the normal one, which sometimes is you know, longer than half the room. So we really need to just, it's an awareness, it's, it's an insight that is not just normal for everyone to think about when they get up in the morning. So we talked a lot about, we talked about a lot of different interventions about screening and identification, about training, um, about sort of cultural issues that we need to work, make sure are in place in the whole organization. Um, I'm going to put you each on the spot and say if we, for the folks who are listening and, and they want to take action on this, what are the what are the sort of boil it down to the one or two things they could do in the very short term in addition to all those what sound to me like much sort of longer term mm -hmm. uh, remedies and steps? So what, what are some things that somebody could, you know, this afternoon in their office or in their hospital take care of? I would I would definitely talk to the staff and reinforce that that is not a part of their job to accept violence as, 
you know, part of their daily routine and to encourage their staff that, that they are supported. Because if you're supported, then your ability to report and, and your non-punitive approach to reporting will, will show these problems and then they can work with them on, on a bigger level. A couple of other things that a facility might consider doing on the short term is we talked about debriefing earlier. Get staff engaged in debriefing after an episode so that they can learn from each other so that we can identify what led to that crisis and report that information to your risk manager, your patient safety officer, so that the organization can use that information to improve but also staff participating in that debrief are learning what could they do maybe a little differently the next time there's a, an incident, and there will be a next time. Another thing facilities might consider doing is look at what medications are available to staff on your medical surgical unit. Are there enough medications, sedating medications, medications for that psych patient so that if there is a crisis and something is needed, do they have a way of accessing that medication right away? Well, it's a good point because I think a lot on the medical floors, the nurses don't feel that medicating a patient is the right way to handle them. And um, there are certain instances where sedating a patient to reduce their, their aggression or violence is very appropriate, as long as it's done the correct way with physician's order and, and everybody understands what's going to happen after that sedation wears off. What have we put in place that's different from the first part? The other, um, the other part of this that you brought up that... Um, the debrief? The debrief. You know, we do safety huddles. And one of the things in the deep dive that came up glaring is that communication is really lacking. Communication everywhere, from the patient to the staff to the staff to the staff. And what we find out, sort of like what we talked about, the medication list getting lost from ED to the unit, you need to make sure that your shifts know who the potential patients are that may give them a hard time. And if you've done anything that worked, share it. Communicate. No one should be left in the dark if they have a patient on the floor. That If you have a patient that you think is, you know, not doing very well and could possibly die at the end of the shift, that's communicated. Well, that same kind of communication needs to happen with a patient that can be potentially violent. All right. Nancy Napolitano, Cindy Wallace, thank you very much. Welcome. All right. Cindy Wallace is a Senior Risk Management Analyst here at ECRI, and Nancy Napolitano is a Patient Safety Analyst with ECRI Institute's PSO. If you need more information, be sure to check out the podcast description or head to ECRI's website at www.ecri.org. Send us your feedback about our podcasts at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org or by connecting with ECRI Institute on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute to hear future episodes.